So hello and welcome to another episode of Interviews with Experts. Today, my very special guest is Dr. Marla Spivak. Marla received a bachelor's degree in 1978 from Humboldt State University and a PhD from the University of Kansas. She has been affiliated with the University of Minnesota since 1993, where she is currently Distinguished McKnight Professor in the Department of Entomology. She is the author and creator of numerous beekeeping manuals and videos, and her scientific articles have appeared in such journals as the Journal of Developmental Neurobiology, Evolution, Apodology, and Animal Behavior. Marla is a MacArthur Foundation Fellow, which is awarded by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. It's popularly known as the Genius Grant. In this video, I catch up with Marla at the University of Minnesota Bee Lab. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is The Way to Be. So hello and welcome to everyone. I'd like to introduce my guest today, uh, Dr. Marla Spivak. Hopefully she is not new to you. Uh, I've followed Marla's work for many years. It's very important, great stuff. And I want to talk about your life a little bit, actually, uh, to get started. But Marla, where are you right now, if you'd like to introduce um, the university where you work? Sure. I'm at the University of Minnesota. And I'm in the Department of Entomology in the College of Ag, but we're in the Bee Research Lab, which is a separate building from entomology. And um, even though you see my bike in the background, it's, it is winter, but we just don't have snow and it's warm enough to bike. So mm -hmm. there we okay. go. Okay. Well, thank you so much and welcome again. And you do know that today's Groundhog Day. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Punk's a tiny Phil. I don't even know if you saw a shadow or not. I'm sure it's absolutely 100% science-based that we will know if we get a longer winter or spring comes early. But that's that's going on today. So it's Friday. So happy Friday to you. I'm going to dive right into your um, to your background, if you're comfortable sharing about that. Because um, you're in Minnesota right now. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Denver, Colorado. Oh, Denver, Colorado. Okay. I was thinking maybe somewhere Midwestern, but Denver's good. So how do you make the transition from Denver to Minnesota? Well, uh, frankly, it didn't go Denver, Minnesota, but it, I this was not my first choice of a place to live. But um, I, at the time I got this position, I was doing a postdoc in Tucson, Arizona, which I love. But um, that's why I thought Minnesota, boy, that's going to be a big climate change. But I'm happy I did. It's been a good move. What years were you in Tucson? Well, I lived there a couple of times. Uh, my postdoctoral research after my PhD was from 1989 to 92, 91, 92. Okay. I used to live in Flagstaff. My mom taught for the University of Arizona Flagstaff. But uh, long before you were there, and uh, I want to jump into what your childhood was like in Colorado then. Are you an, an indoor child or an outdoor child? What were your interests like? Uh, I was an outdoor child. You know, I grew up in the city, but uh, I guess my favorite memories, my dad always had a Jeep of one sort or another. He had a series of Jeeps and we'd go uh, Jeeping and camping in the mountains a lot. That was my favorite 
thing to do and you know a lot of skiing in the winter and um did sports you in the summer did you often wander off by yourself were you kind of an individual explorer and observer or were you kind of group oriented well you know i was so young i don't think my dad let me go off on my own i definitely went off on my own in my teenage years you know mm -hmm. camping with friends or you know and in college but not as a youngster. So in your teen years camping, uh, what was the goal of the camping trip? To get out of the house, you know. Just get out of the house. So you didn't have like, there weren't target species that you were trying to see or observe or learn more about. It was more social? No, it was more getting out into the woods or, you know, you know, winter camping or summer camping and hiking. And, okay. you know, my family has some property in Colorado and we'd go up there and spend some time and walking and climbing peaks around there. So. Oh, that's cool. The air quality in Colorado is supposed to be really good. So yeah. high school, high, our high school group went to Leadville, Colorado, and I'm originally from St. Louis, Missouri, and a bunch of the kids that had acne issues found their acne cleared right up. I don't know if that was due to the weather. Or what was going it's pretty dry. Yeah. Pretty dry. Okay. So, um, what about, I'm trying to hone in on any animal interests. Did you have exotic pets or anything like that when you were no, younger? I didn't, no. I mean, I the great outdoors was great, but I didn't have any, I wasn't, not, no, no animal interests. Okay. <laughs> in, in particular, until I was at college. Okay. Uh, can you mention in your early education, maybe one teacher or one adult that set aside time that uh, really impacted your life in a positive way? Well, there was a high school science teacher that got me really interested in that, a Japanese guy, and um, got me very interested in just sciences in general and biology. And then I went to college in Prescott, Arizona, actually, mm -hmm. at Prescott Did College. Did you ever um, reach back and let that teacher know how much that he impacted your many life? Many people have. Yes, many people have. Yeah. Okay. Inspirational to many, many people. Oh, that's great. And then I read that uh, when you were 18, you went to the library and checked out a book on bees, and that was transitional for you. Yeah, that was at Prescott College. And, okay. Um, yeah, that's it was kind of bored, looking for something to read, went to the college library and grabbed the book and um, stayed up all night reading it. And when I woke up the next day, I, I when I, I mean, the next day, I didn't go to sleep. I told my advisor that I was really interested in seeing a beehive and could I somehow, this was an experiential college. So they allowed you to have experiences for educational credit, mm -hmm. for school credit. So he found a beekeeper in New Mexico and um, south of Albuquerque. And mm -hmm. I went and worked for this family, a commercial beekeeper, mm -hmm. for a semester. And then I went back over the summer for a while. Mm -hmm. Do you recall the, the title of the book? Well, you know, people ask me that all the time. <laughs> I'm not sure. It's called Bees Ways. And the Bees last Ways? Um, it's not that great of a book. I have reread it. It's okay. It was just that time, just something out, reached out and grabbed me mm -hmm. at that time. You know, I'm not sure 
others would be inspired. <laughs> right. But it, I, I think it's interesting just to know that a, a single book that you just happened to cross um, had that impact on you and encouraged you to move on into learning more about these themselves and then making that leap going to New Mexico. Uh, and also you even left the country, right? And you did some bee research. Would you share a little bit about that? Um, right. So let's see. I finished my undergrad degree at Humboldt State in California, and then went from there to Tucson, and this would have been about 78, um, to try to work at the USDA Bee Research Laboratory in Tucson. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't hire me, so I was kind of volunteering, but a friend that did work there uh, was, asked to go give a talk in Brazil at a conference for one of the researchers that, that couldn't make it to the conference. So I decided I needed to travel with her, <laughs> of course. So we um, went to Brazil and attended this international beekeeping conference in Southern Brazil. And our plan was just to travel around a little bit and then come home. But we ended up staying for months and months and months and traveled through South America. <laughs> and then, okay, so that's very interesting. And I did interview Maggie Shanahan, uh, who is, she's down in that area, is that right? She's in Southern Mexico. Oh, Southern, oh, right, okay. In Chiapas, yeah. And did she finish her PhD? Yes, she did. She did, May, okay, because, yeah, that's last great. Year. And um, she was very grateful that you took her on, by the way, so she credits you for. Well, you know, I've had a number of students where I've learned more than, from them than they may have learned from me. So she's one of them. That's great. So what was something that uh, you learned from her research down there that might be surprising? Well, half of her research was on stingless bees, mm -hmm. which I know very, I know a little bit about. But I was able to go down to Chiapas with her research site down there and for a few days help her do some research. So that was you know, just I learned a whole lot about them down there. That was great fun and really interesting. Mm -hmm. And so um, there at the Bee Lab. Now, the Bee Lab at the University of Minnesota is referred to often as the Spivak Lab. Is that an official title or is it just called the Bee Lab? Or just, just people say lab. that because, okay. They just I don't say know why people say that. It's kind of, um, I wish they wouldn't because within the lab, there's another professor who studies native bees. His name's Dan Caravo. So it's definitely okay. not my lab. <laughs> okay. It's just people refer to that because so much of your work is tied into it. Um, when you first got to the University of uh, Minnesota, the bee program or bee research or the entomology department put you in a garage? What's the, <laughs> what was the facility like? <laughs> kind of. So I did have within the entomology building, which sits across the street over there, um, I had an office and a lab, you know, small. It was what everybody in entomology had. But the bees themselves, the extracting equipment and where we could build equipment and get field research set up was in a old garage, cinder, blo cinder block, basically a garage. Mm -hmm. um, on the edge of campus. And so that's that's what we're referring to. And the university condemned that building for honey extracting in the 90s. And 
it was like, well, that's great, but don't you do anything about buildings you condemn? I mean, you should fix it or give me a different building. And they said, no, you can either do your research in this building or you can extract honey, but you, and bring it up to food grade or you, you know, or you can't extract honey. So we took all of the extracting equipment and moved it to Gary Ruder, who was my technician for you, the 30 years. We moved it to his barn, <laughs> which was definitely not food grade, but we moved it to his barn and we would just take our truck, our honey over there and spend mm -hmm. a day or two extracting at the end of the summer. Mm -hmm. So were you the primary person that pushed for the current bee lab or who, who helped with that? Well, Gary and I did. So Gary yeah, was both. really instrumental in helping design it and plan it and work with the architects and then work with the construction team, the contract, you know, everybody. So it was to make sure um, that parts of it are be tight and the workflow was a certain, you know, how you move into the garage, the hot room, the extracting room, that all of that mm -hmm. made sense from our point of view. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I pushed for the building because um, where that little garage was, our natural history museum, the university's natural history museum wanted to build on that corner of campus. And they said, well, I'm just going to have to move. And I'm like, where, you know? And so just started um, fighting, basically, and um, saying that, you know, I just, you can't just shut down this it is a research facility mm -hmm. and then it it took years and years it took about 10 years mm -hmm. to really bring it to the level of attention where the university said okay we'll put it forward as a capital request to the state legislature mm -hmm. so then uh did you end up getting what you wanted as far as because oftentimes we have these concepts i think it's great that entomologists are being used to help design the facility so that you get kind of what you want out of it but often you get together with your architects and things and you end up with something similar to what you wanted how close right. do they come to what your dream building would have been exactly it in fact bigger than we anticipated um, oh. it, just because of rules of the university where they decided that that they could put it because it does need to be on the edge of campus because we do have live bee colonies around. Right. Mm -hmm. um, in this particular area of campus where we're situated, the minimum size building must be 10,000 square feet. So mm -hmm. we were thinking of something smaller, but it was like, okay, this is a good problem. We can, but we can adapt. But Gary uh, got architectural web design programming and sat down and <laughs> in his way he outlined exactly how we wanted the building and you know he and mm -hmm. i worked together on this and then gave it to the architects and they laughed at it and said what is this and we explained no if it, it's not an architectural plan it is a concept and we need it like this and mm -hmm. um they followed it i mean they made it work but they mm -hmm. followed it. yeah mm -hmm. what's your favorite part of that building to be in the whole lab is really marvelous. I mean, it's got my office. There's a group of offices around a big break room and mm -hmm. kind of kitchen, little kitchen area. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people hang out there at lunch and, you know, it mm -hmm. brings people together. There's a conference room with a huge view. 
Um, mm -hmm. And then there's a hallway and with all the, the molecular lab and some practical labs mm -hmm. and then the extracting room and a big garage, a hot room and an observation mm -hmm. hive room. You know, it's got mm -hmm. everything. There's no favorite part. I just like the whole okay. thing. And Actually, lots of lots of natural light. Looking at it from the outside, some very large window space. And yeah, and uh, well, okay. My favorite part, if you will, is the garden outside, which is all native prairie plants. Okay, it's and that's beautiful. something that you're really trying to encourage people to get involved with, right? Yeah. Is native planting and pollination resources. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I do want to get into another thing. Um, when we talk about native bees, because we focus about honeybees a lot. And there's mm -hmm. over 20,000 uh, native bee species around the world. And you have a sweat bee named after you. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, if they allow bees and birds to have be named after people, you know, they're changing those rules. But for right oh, now. Oh, they are. I didn't know that. Okay. Well, they're starting to change at least how some birds are named. Um, anyway, uh, which, is, which is fine. But a former student of mine, his name's Joel Gardner, um, is a very, very good uh, bee taxonomist, systematist. And he's now the curator of the Insect Museum at Washington State University. And um, he, for his PhD, which he did in Canada, actually, Manitoba, he was working on sweat bee group, which is an extremely hard group of bees to distinguish and identify. Mm -hmm. And he found a new species and it, uh, he decided to name it after me. Oh, he named it after you. I was all excited that you had discovered the bee and realized it was different somehow. So he's just crediting you and wanted to name you because you've had such a powerful influence on his life. Well, he's a very cool guy. Now, you said he's at uh, Washington State. Is that where Dr. Ramsey is also located now? Samuel Ramsey? Oh, I don't. I should know that, but I don't know that. That's okay. where Steve Shepard uh, okay. was, Brandon Hopkins. Okay. So um, if you had not gotten into bees and entomology and what you're currently doing, what other path did you consider, if any? I have no idea, but I probably just would have been a beekeeper. Just a beekeeper in general? Well, that's that's an interesting tie-in because you are, is it true that you're retiring at the end of this year? Yes, I am. And what's your plan? Will you keep bees on your own property somewhere or? Well, I do. I mean, I live in town and I do have bee colonies in my backyard. So, um, but I don't, my plan is to not plan at least for a while. We'll just see. I don't. So you're just we'll going to be, in, I get into. you're just going to be in the wind and whatever you think of, you're going to go and do. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting, too. Now, some people speculated that um, this information will be down in the video description for those who are listening and watching, but uh, you have concerns about there being a professor that continues uh, at the bee lab there, and there is fundraising going on for that, right? Would yeah. you like to tell a little bit about that and why that's important? Sure. Well, there's been bee research and extension here at the University of Minnesota since 1918. It has the longest history, I think, in the U.S. of bee research and just want to make sure it continues. Um, we are raising money for an endowed chair, which means <clears throat> the payout for 
the money that goes into the fund can support the salary and benefits and extra money for a new researcher going into perpetuity. So mm -hmm. there would always be a honeybee researcher here at the University of Minnesota. And mm -hmm. I think it's very important that we continue with bee research forever. Mm -hmm. And who decides who that would be? Well, do you me. have do you have influence Indeed. at all on who well, might be considered? No. I really don't want to. I will help write the job description. Okay. Um, so that it fits with because we have a whole extension people and a B squad program. Mm -hmm. I'd like my only desire is that the new person will work with the team that we have that will continue after I retire. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but their area of study and you know that's completely up to the search committee from entomology. And they always that search committee will have outside members, maybe a mm -hmm. beekeeper, somebody from industry, uh, maybe somebody from other departments. So mm -hmm. they actually do all the interviews and the choice. And, you know, I okay. know so many people in the bee world. I don't want to be making that choice. Sure. Because when you pick one, you just reject all the others. So that's yeah. that's very hard. And I'm glad that you referenced the history of uh, education there at that university because I did pull up a picture from 1922 yeah. of a B class that was going on. I noticed that it's, I think there are two men in there and all the rest are women. Yeah, isn't and, that crazy? Yeah, it was very interesting to me because the first beekeeper I ever knew of was my grandmother in Chester, Vermont, and she was keeping bees in the 20s. So it was kind of about that time. And it's just very interesting to look back at that history. And I also think it's fantastic that uh, that was the first program in the United States, considering you know everything else that should have been going on here. I find that really interesting. So um, one of the things, and I attended your presentation at the North American Honeybee Expo in Louisville, Kentucky this year. And uh, there's a lot of talk about, and of course, propolis is a big thing. And uh, you've dedicated a lot of your time and, and energy into that research. Um, there were some studies done on different surface materials that encouraged bees to bring in and cover it with propolis. Did that research begin at uh, University of Minnesota? So yes. would you talk to us a little bit about kind of what kind of surfaces and materials you experimented with and how sure. you arrived where we are kind of today. Right. Well, when we looked inside of a bee tree, you know, a, an old tree snag and saw the propolis envelope that Tom Seeley had described years ago in a book, you know, had a diagram. Mm -hmm. And then when we actually saw it, we thought, wow, we would like to do some research on this, but we need to get a propolis envelope with this layer of propolis in the interior walls of a beehive. How do we do that? do that. So we tried various things, making a tincture and painting it on, stapling propolis traps, cutting mm -hmm. them and stapling them into the box. And then, you know, that messes with the bee space, something fierce. So you don't want to do that. And and so then we tried different kinds of screen and plastic grids and of various textures. And some of them, the bees would shred and others just weren't deep enough. And <clears throat> so then we started messing with um, roughening up the interior of the bee, of our bee boxes, our Langstroth bee boxes. We tried wire brush, we tried different things, and none of them 
had, had, except for the propolis traps, allowed the bees to put in as much propolis as they would ever do in a tree cavity. Mm -hmm. And we kept thinking we have to get more like a tree cavity. What is it about it? And it's very uh, rough and craggy. Excuse me, I'm like sneeze. <laughs> okay. Um, so then a guy that was working in the bee squad um, has his own lumber mill. And he went home and brought back a box that was uh, had grooves about a quarter inch deep. And they were very, very rough cut. So they weren't smooth grooves. They were very rough. And he said, try these. So we um, we did. And the bees really deposited a lot of propolis. And that's when we realized it's not only just the groove, it's the roughness. And it's mm -hmm. not just roughness. They need depth in there, too. So, um, yeah, he that guy made a bunch of boxes for us, but then he moved on to do other things. So now, Premier Bee Company, I guess I can say this, I'm not really supposed to endorse or promote particular companies, but there is a company now that is selling rough interior bee boxes, and I'm really pleased with that. Now, how did, um, now the Premier, and they again, they had their big reveal at the Honeybee Expo, and uh and reference you a lot, of course, but primarily that's to validate the value of propolis inside whatever cavity the bees occupy. And so I do have a question about that too, when we talk about the thickness of the propolis, because they kind of refresh these layers, you know, throughout the year, very thin layers. Does it matter the depth of it or more the coverage area? In other words, does thicker propolis benefit the bees more than just a thin glazing that covers everything? Well, it just depends how fresh it is, I think. Okay. So, you know, the propolis, you know, has a lot of volatiles. It smells, you know what it smells mm -hmm. like. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those volatiles are, that's, some of those have the active components, active ingredients, antimicrobial parts. Part of it's mm -hmm. through contact, part of it's the volatile. Mm -hmm. And so after time, the propolis will lose some of its antimicrobial activity. Mm -hmm. So the having them bring in fresh every year is a good thing mm -hmm. so and the depth does, depth doesn't matter i think it's more of the quantity and uh the freshness of it okay and so and you did identify some tree species that were preferred as a place to gather that uh, resin from um and then you did experiments where you even introduced I don't know if it was bacteria or something introduced to the bees that caused a response in the bees that sent them out to gather more propolis to bring it in. Yeah. And then of course, uh, Medicaid. Yeah, that was fun. We just wanted to know if we had evidence that if bees are in a box with a propolis envelope, that mm -hmm. they have less chalk brood and American foul brood. It didn't cure, it's not a treatment, but if they are sick, they they don't get as, as badly infected if they have a propolis envelope. The propolis is helping them reduce the bacterial and mm -hmm. fungal load mm -hmm. um, or pathogen load and helping their microbiome because of that also. Mm -hmm. But we wanted to know if if bees, if we made bees sick with chalk brood or American foul brood, mm -hmm. if they would go send out more resin foragers to bring in more medicine, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what we found was completely amazing. I thought that was a crazy idea, actually. That was Mike Simon Finstrom's 
idea. Hmm. And um, what we found when repeated three different times was that if you make a colony sick with chalkbrood by infecting them with chalkbrood disease, they do send out more resin foragers. But mm -hmm. if you infect them with American foul brood, they don't. So curious, but just the way so, they... Well, that's interesting, but, they, but it did demonstrate that propolis envelopes helped mitigate American foul brood? Yeah. Okay. And so when we talk about these grooves and things that were the surfaces that were being experimented with to encourage the bees to collect and coat it with propolis, how does that tie in then with the surface that the people at Premier ultimately ended up with? Did it provide all the surface texture that encouraged the bees to do that as well as or better than surfaces you'd seen in the past? How does well, it compare? They just released the box and we don't, we didn't do any of our research with their boxes. Okay. We did them with the other guys' boxes. The other guys' boxes, the grooves are a little bit deeper, but I think the Premier box, I'm sitting here looking at one right now. Okay. I think the Premier B boxes should be okay. So we'll just see with time. Okay. Yeah. So do you have a plan then to implement those in your apiary there at the university? Well, we can't. Well, it's or kind is of that is that a conflict? Okay. I don't know. No, no. It's just okay. a an expense to replace all of our bee boxes. You know, we have, with the bee squad, we have about 300 colonies, so we can't okay. afford to replace all of our boxes on the budget we're on, but right. um, oh, oh, bit bit by bit, we hope to, yeah. So then, and of course, if we replace them all, you wouldn't have the comparisons that you have. Uh, your current Are yeah. your current boxes roughed up also, or they, do you have some just some the, plain Langstroth hives? Some of them, we have about a hundred from uh, Christian Dom, the, the originator of the, the rough box, the one that okay. slumber. We have about a hundred of those. So, but you know, we keep our bees in two to three deep brood chambers. So we would need a lot more. Okay. So how do they compare um, productivity, longevity? How do you know that a colony with a heavier propolis envelope is doing better? than one that did not have that surface treatment. That's the research we've done for over 12 years. And Maggie's was the last set of research on that, where we took what we found on a smaller scale from here, from the university apiaries, into mm -hmm. a commercial apiary. Mm -hmm. And there, we had 60 colonies with these rough boxes, mm -hmm. and then 60 colonies with smooth boxes. And mm -hmm. we compared them over two years as the bees migrated from South Dakota for honey production to almonds for pollination to California, mm -hmm. and then back to uh, Mississippi, I guess, to raise queens. And then, you know, just followed them for two years on this path and, and found exactly what we found in our research yards here, that the propolis had all kinds of good effects on the immune system and the microbiome and we did see what we didn't see and what we found in the commercial yard was lower um, European foul brood, which we did not see in our previous research. So we're gonna be following up with that. Um, and we just see, saw how the bees survived and operated in the commercial setting and it they were fine. You know, they're, <laughs> they don't live longer, you know, the living longer depends on the mite treatments and the mm -hmm. propolis, to our knowledge, doesn't do, does not have a big effect on the mites. Might That's have too a bad. Effect, but, 
yeah. So how they survive depends on the beekeeper and their mite treatments and how much honey they're leaving, you know, all of that more than the propolis. But the mm -hmm. propolis is providing these kind of, it's a preventative care or, you know, providing this uh, healthy nest environment for them to live in. So it's a good basis for living mm -hmm. <laughs> and staying healthy mm -hmm. for the bees, yeah. So you would say it's a significant benefit? I think so. I think so. It's how they live naturally in trees. And yeah, we've and, completely gotten and, away from that. And they can't collect propolis year, you know, all year long, right? So is this primarily what time of year are they usually doing most of their propolizing of their space? All growing season. So as the bees are collecting most of their propolis here from cottonwood leaf buds. Mm -hmm. Cottonwoods, huge trees. They just keep producing leaves all season and the bees collect resin all season. They scrape it right off the leaf buds and off the leaves, the new leaves themselves and bring it in. So, Now, is it true that when bees make their own honeycomb, it's usually white with almost no scent and that it is the propolis that brings the scent and color to it? Is that true? Well, no, yes and no. We don't okay. know. In the trees, uh, where the combs touch the inner surface of the tree, you can see the bees do uh, put propolis a little bit on the wax and, and a little bit of tiny, like a tiny thin rim around the cells at the top. But they mm -hmm. don't put propolis uh, deposit into the brood combs right. necessarily. Right. However, research from Italy last two years ago found that wax comb is infused with some of the compounds from propolis. It's not like the bees are putting propolis into the comb, but remember the volatile fractions, some of those compounds from propolis are being like infused into the wax and into honey. And so the bees are getting some benefit that way. So during wax production, we would say then. So it's actually going. No, no? wax wax is a sponge, you know. So wax right. will okay. absorb anything. Okay. Um, so now you said you live in the city, and you've got your some beehives right in your own backyard. What is your um, position on backyard beekeeping? Is it helping the bees? Uh, my big thing is I educate backyard beekeepers because if they're doing it, I want to help them do it to the best of their ability and with their current best practices in beekeeping. Um, how do you feel about uh, backyard beekeepers in cities and urban areas? Is that the best use of our space? How does it, what's your opinion? Well, it, <laughs> it depends. If it depends on the goal of the hobby backyard beekeeper. If their goal is to help bees, it's not, that's not the best way to help bees. If they want mm -hmm. to help bees, honeybees and native bees and monarch butterfly, you know, want to help, you plant habitat, you plant flowers. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. helpful. Mm -hmm. If the goal is to produce honey or to enjoy the social behaviors and just enjoy the beehive, mm -hmm. then it's very, very important to like you were just saying, know how to keep them alive and, and mm -hmm. treat if necessary for the mites and really keep this animal well tended and alive. Mm -hmm. So you have mm -hmm. to manage it well, treat it as if um, 
who is a live animal that and not just think that they can live on their own anymore because they mm -hmm. can't. Right, because things have changed environmentally yeah. as well. Um, so what's your, I'm going to ask you a hot button question. Uh, Treatment-free beekeeping um, for the small-scale backyard beekeeper, do you think that's a viable path? It's a viable goal, but it's not a viable path. <laughs> it's just the bees that we have now are just not healthy anymore. When I moved here in the early 90s, we had, there was no varroa, and yeah, you could treatment-free. That was <clears throat> through bees in a box, and they did fine, but it's mm -hmm. not the case anymore. Mm -hmm. so have to now, I'm working with a bunch of colonies, <clears throat> selecting a bunch of colonies that are living without treatments, but it's mm -hmm. taken me five years, and not all of them survive, and I am treating those that need to be treated. Mm -hmm. So I think I've been following what some commercial beekeepers are doing, um, and these are commercial beekeepers. I think hobbyists could do a version of this where they're um, the ones in particular I'm thinking of are the Lamb Brothers, Lamb Honey Company. They have 8,000 colonies and they throughout the summer tag their very best colonies, the most honey production, the ones they like the best for whatever they are doing. Mm -hmm. And they don't treat those. So they, out of their 8,000 colonies, they leave about 300 untreated and they check carefully for mites in those over time. And by February in Southern states, when they're ready to raise queens, they find out of that 300, they maybe find 20 or 40 that are still living of their best colonies. And they raise queens from those mm -hmm. and replace all the queens in their other colonies coming back from California. Mm -hmm. So in other words, they're taking about three to 5% of their best colonies, leaving just those untreated raising queens from their best and replacing their own stock. So mm -hmm. if a if a group of beekeepers are raising their own queens, I think they could do something like that. Just mm -hmm. leave a tiny fraction untreated. Mm -hmm. And then selectively and raise queens from, from them. Yeah. yeah. And that's something that never stops. You never relax and arrive. It's a constant observation, validation, and verification process that keeps your bees healthy. There's no hands-off opportunity anymore. So no, I, that's, that's really correct. That's that's probably the biggest myth is that once you have bees that have lived without treatment that you can just assume they'll do keep doing mm -hmm. that. It's, it's constant work. Right. And that's, that's one of the challenges of informing uh, beekeepers is when they see a video that says, this hive was untouched for 15 years. Look how great they are. You know, those are, that's kind of what we have to work against because that's not, those aren't the same bees that have always occupied that space and it just sure. goes on and on. But sure. I'm glad we touched on that. And um, you mentioned before that this was possible in this climate today, particularly with pesticides that are in use and agricultural practices uh, were challenged, not just with the bees, but with our native pollinators. And uh, do you have any insight on that or is there progress being made some states are outlying uh neonicotinoids for example um, i participated in a pollen study uh, last summer which just i just got the results this past week and it was hosted by the university of vermont uh, looking for pesticide residues in native plants adjacent to these big crops 
as well as evaluating the pollen that my honeybees are collecting from corn. Mm -hmm. So it was very interesting. And do you have anything to share about that? What's going on with our agriculture? Right. Well, right. I, For me, I think something that we should be trying to do is close the loophole that says seed treatments are not pesticide application. Mm -hmm. So companies can treat seeds, not just with neonics, but with all kinds of insecticides, fungicides, fertilizers. You know, the, our seeds now are carrying the burden mm -hmm. <laughs> to improve the soil and combat pests. Mm -hmm. um, and for some, there's just this loophole that says that once you're planting a seed is not a pesticide application. And okay. I think that's just common sense <clears throat> that if the seed has pesticide on it, no matter what it is, mm -hmm. that it be considered a pesticide application. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> because that and becomes that, a systemic, right? That we're talking about, it's a systemic pesticide. It doesn't even matter which insecticide, it, it doesn't have to be a systemic. Anything, no. a, any pesticide, so insecticide, herbicide, fungicide, anything applied to that seed, mm -hmm is a pesticide application. Okay. It should be, but it's not now. Okay. You, so you, was that a recent change? I mean, you no, say no, it's no, not it's now. It's always been like that. No, that okay. pesticide application is when you apply it, you know, spray or a ground application. Sure. Yeah. If you put it on a seed, that is covered as a pesticide application, but in the factory or the company. But once you plant the seed, it's no longer regulated. So you have no idea how much is going into the ground through seed. And that wow. that's just ridiculous. Yeah. So what do you know about the impact of those practices on wild pollinators? Other than because we, you know, we have the non-native honeybee that's getting yeah. all the attention these days, but right. there's so many other pollinators that are impacted. Uh, right. what do we know about? Where that's headed. Well, I mean, I there's been some research, but if you have a solitary bee and they only need a little bit of pollen to fill a few cells in the soil, mm -hmm. and the pollen they collect in spring is contaminated, mm -hmm. and they put it in the in the in the ground and then they lay an egg on it, that larva eats the pollen directly. Right? If right, it's contaminated yeah. with a lethal dose, that's probably it for the larva. Mm -hmm. It's different for honeybees because we the honeybees store the pollen and then the nurse bees eat it. It's detoxified somewhat. And then the nurse bees don't feed pollen directly to the larva. It's that it goes through their heads, comes out as brood food. So it's already processed and detoxified some, somewhat. So the honeybees mm -hmm. are able to buffer the effects of what's coming in mm -hmm. from pollen. But our native bees eat pollen, their larvae eat pollen directly. And that could be 100% of their pollen source for their larvae. Yeah. yeah because yeah. it is such a small amount. And I like that correlation you made with the honeybees because honeybees often even put several varieties of pollen in the same pollen cell. Right. So that is very interesting. They are mixing it up. And that's yeah. what I found too in the results of my testing was I thought I was alarmed because so much pollen was coming in from the corn, which I had not paid attention to before. I needed mm -hmm. to video it. So... I was seeing yeah. these bees just loaded. And once you saw the color, 
but it did not show up uh, in high levels in the pollen testing because they were mixing together all these other floral sources yeah. of pollen. Mm -hmm. So it's very interesting. Um, what is one amazing thing that you've observed in honeybee anatomy that uh, really kind of shocked you that you just were amazed by something that a bee does with some part of its body that you had never thought of? You know, their bodies are like Swiss army knives. They're got so many little things going, tricks and gizmos going yeah. on. One of my favorites is their antenna cleaner. Okay, yeah, front, me too. That yeah. Groove that they can, yeah. like where their quote elbow would be and they can right. clean off their antenna. I think that's really yeah, their their tibia and fibia come together and close that up, and it matches the. It's one of my favorite things to talk about when I give a bee presentation. Is that yeah. very thing? So that's interesting because yeah. I used to look at that and think that was a brush. I didn't realize that it's actually just a hard cuticle and yeah. matches. That's very so. That was amazing to you. Yeah. Okay. So how do bees determine the thickness of the cell wall of their honeycomb? I just I read an an entomology research paper that said it had to do with their antenna diameter or something. Is yeah. that, what What do you know about that, if anything? I don't know very much about that, but I do know that they're using their antennae and their forelegs and they're able to measure thickness with that. Their antennae are mm -hmm. just loaded with sensilli, you know, just mm -hmm. sensory pits and cells yep. that taste and smell and vibration, you know, all kinds of things. So I imagine they're very, very good at determining the thickness. Plus mm -hmm. their bodies, you know, they're going to get into that cell and they have to fit. So Right. Yeah. And they've done experiments where they remove the forelimbs of the bees to see, you know, mm -hmm. particularly the queen, to see her judgment in putting a right. drone or a right. worker bee. And uh, But they couldn't do that with the workers because they used her forelimbs for all of their wax production and everything else. Yeah. Um, what is it you would like to know about bees that you currently don't? What answer would you seek that you don't currently have? Wow. Well, my main interest, general interest, is how bees, how a bee colony keeps itself healthy. Mm -hmm. Their natural, we call social immunity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we know a lot about hygienic behavior, a lot about propolis collection. Those are things that I've studied forever. Uh, I think, based on what ants do, that are other social animals, um, mm -hmm. I'm wondering the role of bee venom in sterilizing and using as an antimicrobial within the beehive. So not that bees are stinging each other, but that some venom could be smeared on their cuticles and have or used in some ways that might have beneficial effects or it's not venom, other glands, maybe salivary glands or other glands that may produce antimicrobial substances mm -hmm. that are helping keep bees healthy. I think those are areas that could be explored a little bit more. Mm -hmm. I think the microbiome that that's a that's a hot area of study right now throughout all, not just honeybees, but all organisms, plants, animals, and everything is who is in the microbiome and what do these what do those organisms do you know with help with digestion help with immune functioning help with all kinds of things so i think i think that's going to reveal a lot of amazing findings 
mm -hmm. microbiome studies. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Well, um, let me just look at my list to make sure I haven't uh, skipped over anything. Current testing, propolis collection and genetics. Um, tell us something about yourself that most people would not know. Oh boy. <laughs> Some skill or interest or. I don't, you know, I love to ride a bicycle. I love to walk. I love to walk along the Mississippi River. We, my husband and I do a lot. Um, yep. You know, I don't, I don't know that I'm that interesting of a person, you know, <laughs> I cook and walk and bike and um, ski and otherwise I'm really just. Are you at all, are you artistic or creative in any way? I don't do any art. I have played some instruments, but I haven't for a very long time. Well, what were your instruments? A piano and a mountain dulcimer. A mountain dulcimer? Mm -hmm. How long <laughs> How long has it been since you've played that? Oh, I pick it up every once in a while. That it's that took me back to the 70s. I think a lot of people <laughs> were playing those instruments then. Okay, so any, I want to thank you for joining me for this interview today. I think it's very helpful, and I find all that's going on in the B-Lab there very interesting, and your work obviously extremely valuable to uh, bees and beekeepers all over the world. Uh, do you have any closing uh, commentary that you'd like to make? No, I appreciate your your interest. Um I appreciate that people might be interested in that endowed chair. That means a lot to me. But mostly I'm really hope that people continue to respect and revere honeybees. They're they're really worth it. Mm -hmm. And that beekeepers um treat their bees well mm -hmm. in all senses of the word treat. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do them right. Well, thank Do you right for that. Them. I did have an afterthought. You, um, public speaking, you're very good at public speaking. By the way, at the North American Conference, when I, they didn't have someone to introduce you, I wish I had been up there to introduce you for that second talk. I would have had a lot to say. Ooh, um, that's scary. But you, you gave a tech talk. Um, would you tell me how that went? I mean, because that's a huge thing. Did that, Was that at all daunting to you to put together a tech talk and stand up in front of a group like that? What was that like? Extremely daunting. They asked me to give this talk. Uh, I prepared it. I had to rehearse it to the TED people. They, in fact, told me they wanted certain things they wanted me to include in the talk so that I had, which was kind of okay. And then I had to memorize it. And um, and it had to be exactly 15 minutes. And so <laughs> when I got on the stage, I had practiced using my PowerPoint that has a timer in presentation mm -hmm. mode. So I knew where I needed to be at six minutes and 11 minutes. Those were transitions in my talk. And I got on stage and the counter counted <laughs> backwards from 15. Okay. And as I, <laughs> it was just enough where I was like, oh, wow, I can't do math. And you know, it, it, where do I need to be at six and 11 minutes going backwards? I couldn't do it and talk in the same time. So then I, uh, you know, I was petrified, but somewhere about a minute or minute in or something, I, 
I realized, you know, if I don't get into this talk myself, no one's going to get into this talk. If I don't mm -hmm. feel it, mm -hmm. no one's going to feel it. So I just right. kind of went for it. And so we don't get to see the audience when someone's giving a tech talk. How many people are in there? Like 12? No, there were <laughs> thousands. There were a, that's a my humor. Thousands. I know it has to be a big crowd. So what's the venue like? Uh, well, this was in Edinburgh, Scotland. And, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And it was a huge, huge auditorium room and very expensive seats. I think they were at that time 6,000 a seat to be there. What? I didn't know that. And That's so incredible. It was full of um, people that could afford that. <laughs> Those people um, could cover that donation that we're looking for. <laughs> that just, but um, so. Yeah, that is really interesting. And hardly anyone watched that presentation, by the way. It's at 3,200,000 something. Does that does that surprise you that so many yes. people watch your TED Talk? Yes, I hadn't I haven't gone back to count views. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, that was very surprising. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you did it. It was a very interesting talk. And of course I watched it in preparation for my interview with you today. So here we go. Oh, did you? So, oh yeah, I, I looked into everything I possibly could. So I want to thank you and I really appreciate your time and uh, look forward to maybe running into you again at another conference someday. I hope so. Thank you, Fred. So, yep, yeah, absolutely. And that wraps up another episode of Interviews with Experts. I want to thank Marla from the University of Minnesota B-Lab. If you enjoyed this uh, interview, please don't forget to leave a like. And if you're new to the channel, I invite you to subscribe. Always check down in the video description to make sure that you follow up on any updated or follow-on information related to today's presentation. Thank you for watching and I hope you have a fantastic weekend.